Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. During the editing of this episode, we received word that Jackie Lane, who played Dodo Chaplet in the William Hartnell era, had died. And we would like to dedicate this episode to her memory. Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking Who! Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening this is john leeson and i play kate nine on doctor who you're listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels and that is compulsory Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the macroscopic task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally macroscopic three-person discussion panel, not because we're big and fat or anything, we're just large, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. (laughs) Hello, hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's a wise and witty Alison Fitch-Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Good evening. 
If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those that you have built a special base on Titan just to keep them all in. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Those are getting harder to do. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I did it all in one breath that time. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now with the second story of Tom Baker's fourth season with Terrence Dick's novelization of The Invisible Enemy. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Invisible Enemy, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Bob Baker and Dave Martin that aired from 10177 to 10-22-77, published by Target Books in March 1979. As of this recording in June of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 110 pages. Now, I haven't checked to make sure, but I believe this may be the second shortest Target book, right after The Robots of Death, even though this one feels even shorter. In 1978 and 1979, as we've discussed previously, Terrence Dix wrote all of the novelizations published in those years, except for two and three, respectively. This one had to have been cranked out under deadline, and sadly it shows. But there's nothing in David J. Howe's Target book about this one, and I mean nothing. It's mentioned as having been published in 1979, but that's it. They don't say anything else about it, and, well, obviously there are reasons. It is the first story produced in Graham Williams' first season as the new producer of Doctor Who. Horror Fang Rock was actually produced afterwards, but it aired first, so there's that. That also means, however, that even though Graham Williams was told that he needed to keep the budgets low for this season, he essentially blew his entire budget (laughs) on this first story, specifically because of the tin dog. And whatever else may be said about this one, we have to address the tin dog in the room, namely K-9, who makes his first appearance in the story. John Leeson was hired to provide the voice for the mechanical mutt, and he threw himself into the part, even (laughs) getting down on all fours during rehearsals so that the actors would know the eye lines for K-9. Being an experienced voice actor, he would also provide the voice of the nucleus of the swarm. I thought I'd got rid of you. You were mistaken. It may still surprise some people, but Leeson did not require any voice modulation to do either of the two voices. He does K-9 in his own voice, as you probably heard in the new bumper for this episode, that he recorded for us back in 2019. K-9 was specifically added because of the edict from the higher-ups to make the show less scary and more kid-friendly. Bearing in mind that this is a season that has Horror of Fang Rock and Image of the Fendal in it, which are arguably two of the scariest stories Doctor Who has ever done. Graham Williams saw that he was such a popular addition that he decided to make him the Doctor's first non-humanoid companion by the end of production of this story. 
Leeson himself is immensely popular with Tom Baker, which took a lot of pressure off Louise Jameson despite their improved working relationship. The canine prop, however, was another matter. Both it and the nucleus of the swarm costume created challenges during filming. The canine prop was radio-controlled, and so it often careered into the cameras on whim. (laughs) And it also caused some sort of feedback on the cameras occasionally if it got too close to them. So there was that. And Tom Baker in particular hated having to crouch down to get into shot with it. Understandably. The Nucleus costume suffered as a result of how much money went into creating the canine prop, so much so that it was made mostly of fiberglass, which tended to flake during filming, getting onto the camera lenses and up people's noses, which can't have been fun, not to mention how uncomfortable it was for the actor inside it, John Scott Martin, to wear. Notable guest stars for this one are Frederick Yeager, who last appeared as Professor Sorensen in Planet of Evil, as Professor Marius. He seems to have a thing about playing professors. <laughs> and Michael Sheard, who played the ill-fated Lawrence Scarman in Pyramids of Mars as Lo. One last thing. On screen, but only on screen, all of the signage in both the Bial Foundation and the Titan Base are in phonetic English, as Bob Baker and Dave Martin wanted to emphasize the futuristic setting. Thus, we get signs like exit spelled as E-G-G-S-I-T. Yeah. Oh, God. Exactly. It's stupid. Yeah, a little bit, yes. Dix ignores this in his novelization. After all, we don't want a whole generation of kids learning to misspell simple words like exit, do we? So, yeah. All right, we need a dramatic reading of the back cover, and Allison has fobbed this off on both of us the last couple times, so Allison... <laughs> and on guests as well. Yes, you have, so I think it's I think it's your time. Your time has come. Oh, <laughs> Somehow I always thought it would be more dramatic or more of a, a payoff or a punishment of some sort. Well, it's all Here of the, all the above. <laughs> <laughs> a mysterious cloud drifts menacingly through space. A sudden energy flash and the doctor is infected with the nucleus of a malignant virus that threatens to destroy his mind. Meanwhile, on Titan, human slaves prepare the hive from which the virus will swarm out and infect the universe. In search of a cure, Leela takes the Doctor to the Foundation, where they make an incredible journey into the Doctor's brain in an attempt to destroy the Nucleus. But can the Doctor free himself from the Nucleus in time to reach Titan and destroy the Hive? Luckily, he has help in the strangely dog-like shape of a mobile computer called K-9. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, thank you. Glad I did not read that, because I once again did the audiobook, and I guess I could have skipped the whole thing if I had read that first. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know where the story was going, and you have at times censored the back cover anyway, because you don't want us to know where the story is going. That's true, and I almost did it this time, but then I realized that even censoring the back cover would probably be a tip-off. You did mention to me uh, when we spoke in between recordings not to read it, and I didn't, and I was at least surprised to see canine show up oh good because even though i don't have much experience with canine as a character i do at least know of them so it was a kind of a pleasant surprise i i guess yeah i had to google canine and muffet because i didn't remember which one looked which way <laughs> <laughs> and i've got to say muffet's design is far more offensive Yes. Then uh, Canine says, Canine at least has sort of a, a modern look. Well, no, no, too boxy for that. 
Well, you, you say boxy. <laughs> well, yes, that's you know. the thing. I thought, wait, no, boxy? No, boxy's the child, but it's <laughs> a boxy-looking dog. So, yes, there was some justification to my yes. mix-up. I do like the verbiage of incredible journey instead of fantastic <laughs> voyage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I didn't mention that either, did I, in my spiel, but it's pretty obvious what movie this is stealing most of its plot yeah. from. <laughs> Without okay. any of the panache. I, I am embarrassed to say I don't know what the reference is. Oh, Fantastic Voyage. I never saw Fantastic Voyage. The 1960s movie featuring Raquel Welch as a scientist, <laughs> which tells you exactly what kind of movie it is, in which a team of scientists in a ship are miniaturized and injected into the brain of, and I can't remember who it is, I think it's a diplomat, and the reason why they're doing this is because nuclear war is imminent and he's the only one who can be trusted to do whatever, but he's got a blood clot in his brain, and the only way to get to it is to miniaturize a whole goddamn ship and send them into his body. It actually is a visual delight. I love that movie. Oh, here's a tie-in for you. The novelization of the movie is written by no less than Isaac Asimov. Really? Yes. I did not see that coming. Not the movie is based on an Asimov story or novel, but he did like a commercial product adaptation yes. of a movie starring Raquel Welch. The other way around. Yeah. Huh. Well, everybody's got to rent mortgage property taxes some way to keep a real property. Yeah, exactly. Which is why one of the Goodreads reviews that I'm going to quote later talks about how people make that mistake all the time, thinking that Isaac Asimov wrote the screenplay. They think that because he did write a sequel to it as a novel in the early 80s, if I'm getting the date right. I'm almost certain it was the 80s. I, was, I know I was in high school when it came out. It actually is a much better story than this, but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think I already have your first impressions, but what other first impressions had you of this one before you started reading it? Had I looked at the cover, my impression would be that the doctor is mildly drunk and the lobster yes. is extremely drunk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's telling a jokes, cover. but then it forgets the joke halfway through. <laughs> a self-basting, self-marinating lobster, already full of the white wine. Just add butter. And that derpy face. I cannot believe that the nucleus of the swarm on the cover of this book actually looks worse than the costume. That would actually ex actually explain my true first impression, which was without the book, just the well. It was not a. a Dick's prologue. It was just chapter one. This aggressively diffuse description that we get of the nucleus. It's one of the most avoidant descriptions I've ever read in a way that was interesting because I was trying to visualize and I actually rewound it three times and uh, failed to do so. Well, what we've got is something was waiting out in space. It drifted between the stars, formless, shapeless, a hazy, drifting cloud, waiting patiently. And that's about as physical as it gets there. So I actually was interested, although it was sort of like Genesis, formless, void, hovering over the surface of the water, only, but parasitic. So. In the beginning. <laughs> and then some big guy with a white beard shouts, and all of a sudden there's light everywhere. One of yeah. the modern dynamic equivalence translations you've got there. Yes, exactly. Well, that's what the nucleus looks like once it gets up to macroscopic size. But I'm wondering if Dix was so annoyed by the designs you're describing that he <laughs> chose to ignore them. I know that's not 
the the sequence of the story that we actually have quite a bit of physical description later on no. with macro size but no but i think what's going on there and i i'm just gonna say this outright you know how dix says that he pays a lot of attention to any novelization that he does of a robert holmes script i think you could say the exact opposite of any novelization that he does from a Bob Baker and Dave Martin script. They can hang as far as he's concerned? Well, when he was script editor, he did say they did have a tendency of submitting these wildly fantastical stories that could only be achieved on a feature film budget and not on the budget the Doctor Who actually had. And if you look at novelizations like The Mutants or even the Three Doctors, for that matter, or let's see, what's the last one that they did? Hand of Fear. Then you can kind of see Dix looking at their material and saying, ah, oh, this again, and just doing it and not really taking any joy or pleasure in it. So I think that's why that description is so formless and shapeless. In the script, it had to have also been formless and shapeless, not on screen, obviously, but that cover is not the best but it does give you an idea of just how derpy that nucleus costume looks. The giant prawn. The giant horny prawn. Yes! Usually I feel like I'm the first one to bring it up, but I have uh, quite a bit of dialogue written down. Yes, please bring it up, because you probably have found some stuff I didn't. I hear what you did there. Well, yeah. I, I, I might have oversold, <laughs> but let's see here. What do I have? Faster, faster, roared the nucleus. It was in a slavering frenzy of impatience. That was That's the one where I started actually writing it down. <laughs> Maximum speed! The nucleus, swollen now to enormous size, was lurching towards it, tentacles flailing. With a final tremendous heave, the nucleus burst open the hatchway door. And earlier we have something about the TARDIS. The central column began its rise and fall. That's right before the tremendous heave. <laughs> there was a ferocious roar, and I found this all surprisingly ribald for asexual reproduction. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like it's been in quarantine for the past 15 months. <laughs> yes. And all I can think of is someone who's been edging way too long. And it's just like, oh, my God, this has to be done. Get me to tight now. Uh, uh, well, you, you get the point. Well, at the beginning, when we had this almost spiritual, non-physical description of just a cloud that's pure consciousness and has very clever intellect, and yes, when the the space sailors are taken over, they are speaking in, I guess, a bit of a primitive way. I thought it was just because they're channels rather than the intelligence. I thought the idea was that the intelligence itself was quite strategic. And then it kind of degrades into this uh, squirt show. So I didn't expect that. <laughs> and then we get one of Bob Baker and Dave Martin's trademark lines because they seem to like repeated lines such as Eldrad must live. And this one we get contact has been made. Yes. Ugh. It's like, stop trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Oh, I've got another line that's not from the nucleus, but the doctor moaned and writhed and his bonds was a bit wild, wild west. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Well, where do we start with this? Should we start with K9? Because we can at least talk about the fact that we do have a new companion now and what that does to the dynamic in the TARDIS, whether it's going to do anything to the dynamic in the TARDIS, what it does for the development of Leela's companion, etc. What did you all think of this tin dog coming in when he does? Uh, I don't know how to feel about K-9, because I could see him being incredibly annoying after just a couple of stories. He was kind of novel in this one, you know, the idea of the doctor at the foundation creating himself a companion and then him actually ending up being extremely helpful and intelligent in a way that kind of is a foil to the doctor. But I could also see him being kind of one note where it's like, how much range can a robotic dog have as, as far as character development? Anything past, oh, he's, he's cute, which I guess applies to the kids that are watching. But for adults, it may be kind of annoying. Yeah. As a matter of fact, on my um, YouTube channel, That 70s Review, and yes, I'm doing a plug of my YouTube channel, That 70s Review, I talk about the trope of those damn 70s robots. Because it seems like every TV show produced right around or just after Star Wars has a robot for the kids. Now, I'm not quite sure that the timing tracks for this. I'm not actually sure whether or not K-9 is introduced after Star Wars came out in the theaters or before. Hello everyone, Tony Whit from the future here, correcting myself in the past because this is what I get for talking out of my ass. It turns out that K-9 is not one of the robots from 1970s television that was inspired by R2-D2, because as it turns out, Star Wars was released in the United States in May of 1977, and it was released in the UK in December of 1977, but Invisible Enemy Episode 1 went out on October 1st, 1977. In fact, a quick look at Shannon Patrick Sullivan's site shows that the scripts for The Invisible Enemy were commissioned as early as January 1977, so my entire theory that K-9 is with us because of R2-D2 simply doesn't track. It is true about TV in the United States, but it's not true about K-9. Anyway, back to the program. It certainly happened with Battlestar Galactica, hence we get Muffet. Or Muffet 2, Electric Boogaloo. Oh, wait, I can't make that joke anymore because that's a serious thing now. Oh, God. Um, Muffet 2. You just said a mouthful, yeah. Yeah, I sure did. Muffet 2, and then we get Twicky on Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Twicky also dog-like? No, no. Okay. Twicky is just a robot voiced by Mel Blanc because that's oh. how you do. Yeah, it's not as delightful as it sounds. Hold the phone. Trust me. I'm sorry I was excited. No, no, that's fine. Trust me. You you don't know Twiki like I know Twiki. <laughs> <laughs> but K9 is part of that trope and you would think, "Oh yeah, this is just going to be one a uh, one-note thing that's going to be annoying as hell to the adults, maybe charming to the kids for a while." That plays out a bit with Doctor Who, but it plays out more with the production side of Doctor Who getting annoyed by K9 than parents or adult <laughs> viewers getting annoyed 
annoyed with them. Adults are still irritated, but they're on <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Terrence Dix could never see the point of K-9. John Nathan Turner, when he took over as producer, did everything he could to write K-9 out of stories and even destroyed the prop at one point. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Twice, actually. Like, as part of a stunt or with permission, or he was just letting himself in with the extra set of keys in the dead of night? Oh, no, as part of the story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what we have to look forward to. That was just on-set vandalism. Like, uh, No, the many ways that K-9 times. is going to explode over the stories that are coming. In a way similar to how the nucleus exploded? Yes. Ex- well, not, not exactly the same way the nucleus exploded. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't need a black light to see the after effects, for instance. Oh, God. But, but sorry not to give anything away dalton but you'll be surprised i think okay canine and and if you're not i'll give you your money back <laughs> <laughs> well i know that a lot of people love canine yeah but mm-hmm. just from this first story and it could also just be that this story is not one of my favorites just from this canine doesn't seem like a character that i'm going to enjoy very much mm, okay How about you, Allison? What do you think? Well, I famously have zero inherent interest in the story about a robot, a horse, and then with the bronze, a dog. But that's when the story is about a robot, a horse, or a dog. So I don't mind if there's a secondary character who's a robot, a horse, or a dog. So I guess mechanical Mr. Ed would be even more expensive and complicated to maneuver. Once I realized this was a canine story, I expected canine to be far, far, far more irritating and obnoxious. So canine was totally fine. It's kind of a non-event. The one thing I did not like, maybe I wouldn't say I don't like it. I just kind of seems strange to me is Leela is excited about K-9 and K-9 would not smell right to her. It seems strange to me that she would be excited about a not real dog. And sort of in touch with nature as she is. I have to return to Earth shortly and you could do me a great favor if and maybe it's just sort of as a completely different creature and she's not even processing that's supposed to be like a dog i don't know but that it seemed weird to me that she was excited about a, a non-organic thing like that well i think that part of the story it actually works that she doesn't know what to make of him at first and in fact they are kind of brandishing weapons at each other when they first meet so it's not exactly the first meeting that you'd expect for what ends up happening with them but he does manage to win her over through the course of the story and i think that is bob baker and dave martin's very good way of having the audience won over through leela's reaction because the doctor essentially doesn't get much time with canine in the story at all he has powwow with him to talk about the kill bracken technique and then that's it that's about the only dialogue they have It kind of worked for me that it was a functional robot that, as a bit of an afterthought, was also created in the form of a pet rather than being created as a companion animal, which would be creepier somehow. (laughs) Like someone decided, well, maybe I'm remembering inaccurately the description of, you know, I used to have a dog on Earth, can't have them here because of the scarce resources on the space station. I don't remember what came first, I guess, in my mind. The idea of having a useful computer came first and then make it look like a dog. I could be wrong, but... I think he wanted the dog first and then decided to make it useful. Yeah, I was saying, now that I recall it, I think I'm just making it what I wish it was. I I don't mind personifying or giving a 
computer personality as much as constructing a companion and then making it a smartphone. It seems backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the line is, on Earth, I always used to have a dog, but up here with the weight penalty, it's just not possible. So I had K-9 made up. Exactly. And then K-9 suddenly talks, and you're like, oh. <laughs> and you realize, oh, he's a dog, but he's much more than a dog. So there's that as well. And you could make the joke that some of the companions were not as useful as dogs can be. All right, so we're essentially putting a pin in K-9, so to speak, to see how he works out. Letting all the air out of the <laughs> Well, he's not inflatable, even though there are inflatable toy K-9s, which is just adorable. In fact, any toy K-9 is adorable. It's an odd choice relative to the design. Well, how do you mean? Well, it looks like, you know molded aluminum just i wouldn't go with a soft toy necessarily yeah or no. sorry inflatable just seems a little odd considering that canines all not quite rounded off angles yeah well it may not be a inflatable i'm probably thinking of a plush toy i know there's a plush canine toy and there's a toy canine for every other occasion golden wedding anniversary canine <laughs> different canine figurines and toys and games for different social occasions where it's appropriate to bring a gift well you joke about that but i have a canine toy that has doctor who's 30th anniversary emblazoned across the side of it so yeah he's good for anniversaries <laughs> but only if you want to give tin as the gift oh sorry sorry Get used to that, though. An honest to God snort at 10 canines. <laughs> <laughs> Gentle, but real. I try. Correction. I am not made of tin. It's been listening to us. But here's my question for you. What did you think of this story in terms of being a Leela story, since K-9 is now companion? Does it draw focus off of her? Does she still develop in a way that we like? Does the story handle her well? Tell me. Tell me now. <laughs> I feel like K-9 does kind of bring some of the focus off of Leela. She does still have some moments to shine. There is still a lot of emphasis on her instinct. Continually, she keeps bringing up to the doctor that things don't feel right, I sense danger, something's off here. They even harp on the fact that the swarm has no interest in her because of her low intellect. Did they? Because I thought that was what was being implied, but then they went with like more of a natural antibody instead, but I'm not sure I understood correctly. They said that initially, and even when the swarm initially takes over the doctor, it says, you know, she's a reject. We have no interest in her. And so initially it's made it to seem that, yeah, it's all because of her intellect. It's because she's basically not smart enough, which is why it went after the TARDIS, because it was thinking much faster than anything else. But since it's mechanical instead of biological, it couldn't be used as a host. But yeah, and then in the end, they're like, oh, wait, no, actually, she had an antibody. Which I was actually relieved by because it goes entirely against everything we've seen of Zila's characterization so far for her to not be intelligent. She doesn't have the benefit of accumulation of knowledge that the doctor does or even that we have. But we see over and over that she has had such limited exposure to technology and to societies outside of her own small one. But 
is very intellectually curious and good at figuring things out. So it didn't seem like they were ever going to really settle on the conclusion that she was unappetizing and a reject because of low intellect or low brain activity. It just was it all that we were seeing, even within the story, where she was constantly trying to sort through the situation. Yeah, she's really quite good in this story, as usual. Her instincts are right on the money when she hears the distress signal coming from Titan, and she says, that's not a human voice. I know it's not a human voice. This place is full of evil. The doctor's voice is not right. She can track the virus to its lair, I guess. All of that is just pure and total good Leela characterization. So to say that, oh, she's unintelligent, so we rejected her, is kind of a stupid blind alley that the story goes into. Of course, it's not the only stupid blind alley this story happens to go into. But, but there, this is what I really liked about the characterization, is that she has this intuition that's never called women's intuition. Mm-hmm. And it's not because she is somehow less evolved as a primitive, or actually she should be in some ways more evolved because of where she's from in the timeline. It's purely intuition born of experience in the story. And I actually loved that because in my early middle age, I've become increasingly exasperated by stories where a person is born to their destiny, you know, they're the lost orphan of the hero, etc. Where the circumstances of their birth and their body actually determine their entire destiny, the circumstances of her actual life have created her intuition. And I actually love that. Yeah. And this is also one of the few times where the doctor is outright dismissive of Leela's intuition, but that's in chapter three. And it may be because he's already infected at that point. I love, I guess what I'm trying to say is I love the intuition. It's not mystical. Oh, no. It's not sci-fi either. It's, like I said, where she falls in terms of timeline, she is younger than some, older than others in some ways. And I don't recall the exact nature of the evolutionary split between the Sabatine and the other. The Tesh. Yes, who would who would evolve some telekinesis. Uh, so I don't remember if the Sabatine were supposed to have devolved or not. But there are so many kind of gross possible story points that they sidestep there. I just don't understand why there wasn't a more definitive dismissal of the low brain activity explanation. Mm -hmm. Probably because it's an inconsistency in the story. And <laughs> this is a story that's swimming in inconsistencies. Well, and related to that, Leela is not the breeder. That actually was amazing to me. Oh. The doctor is the breeder. The doctor oh, yeah. is the breeding vessel. Ah. That's a thought. It could have gone the other way. In fact, probably in Modern Who, the companion would have been the one taken over and then the doctor would have to save her. And of course, it would be her because it would never happen to one of the male companions. But you're right. So we could have had a story where the female companion is a low intelligence breeder. <laughs> <laughs> we did not end up having that story. So I, I get the feeling from the things the two of you are saying that maybe I was supposed to hate this, but I actually love that aspect of the story and something else that I'll get into when the okay. topic turns to it. No, that's fine. And believe me, you don't have to hate the story. Trust me. There's stuff to like about it as well. I cannot remember the name of the story, but there was another story where they were on a space station and... There were bugs that were using humans to incubate. Ah, the Ark in space. Yes. And I was getting feelings of that. I was like, haven't we already had this story? Yeah, kind of. 
it's not an exact retread, but it's close enough. And that's probably why I didn't notice the similarities, but you're absolutely right. Probably because the beats of that story end up going very differently than the beats of this story do. Because in Ark in Space, the Weirin, once they've already injected themselves into one of the sleepers, they've essentially started this process that by the end of the story, the nucleus of the swarm is trying to start and fails miserably at, despite its <laughs> its sheer gumption and determination to do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, lordy. Yeah, and I think, too, they're not stuck in one location. Helps mm-hmm. to kind of give this one a little more space. Yes, and I do have an interesting point to make about that. Because you're right, there are two locations here. We have the Titan base and we have the Bial Foundation. The way they get there, and I know why they did this, I understand why they did it plot-wise. They should, by all logical rights, low should have been the one taking the shuttle that was bringing the relief crew and use that to take Leela and the doctors to the Bial Foundation. However... <laughs> They take the TARDIS, and the reason why they have to take the TARDIS is because they need that component from the TARDIS to shrink them down. Don't even get me started on that bit yet. And that's why the TARDIS has to be there, but it also means, and this is something that Dix manages to paper over, because it's not made explicitly clear on screen who's going to pilot the TARDIS. Here he says the Doctor has taught Leela some basics of how to do it. Which, if you think about it, especially given the trouble that later companions are going to have trying to move the TARDIS from point A to point B, is astonishing. Well, and consistent with the fact that she's intelligent, she's uninformed, but she's learning all the time. So I I would do a terrible job at trying to fly the TARDIS, I believe, with no more instruction Mm -hmm. than that. And also given that the Doctor even still is having issues with the TARDIS, not always putting them in the place or the time that they want to be. Exactly. The last story, the one before. The machine is broken again? Yes. <laughs> not exactly. <laughs> well, you could make the argument that the new series would make, that the TARDIS knows where the Doctor needs to go. So even if you have some ham-fisted idiot at the console, but enough about the Doctor, <laughs> it's going to take him where he needs to be. And that may have been what happened here, but it's made to sound very clearly like Leela knows enough about how to program coordinates. In fact, she gets a set of coordinates from the Doctor as she's walking them to the TARDIS, and she remembers them well enough to put them into the TARDIS console. That's something that later companions... Yeah, Leela is not unintelligent if she can do that. It is interesting. I do have a note about K9 here that just says, in a sentence fragment, do not want bot dog. So I guess I did have a negative <laughs> initial reaction, but then it turned out turned out to be okay in this story. Yeah, and that may be the one part of the story that does turn out okay, even though I get the impression that Allison probably liked this better than Dalton or I did. I'll say that post 9-11, which is you know, going on 20 years now, the probably kamikaze-inspired shuttle crash kind of hits differently. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Especially since it doesn't seem to do anything, because it's supposed to cut them off from the rest of the Foundation, and yet it doesn't do a very good job of it. The Doctor still manages to get off of that level, down to the TARDIS, which is where reception is, by the way, and get the dimensional stabilizer and bring it back up. And it's like, um, um... 
Wait, weren't they supposed to be cut off? Well, and we still have the sort of weird tension of whether or not the nucleus is supposed to be this bodiless, ethereal cloud or the most disgusting leftover calamari. <laughs> I wasn't always sure it was the nucleus itself or some other sort of collective consciousness of the species controlling the astronauts, I guess, or the space crew. But their their speech is primitive, but then I think it's indicated they're being very intelligent, except they're really not. And I, I found it kind of hard to settle into a concept of whether or not the nucleus was very intelligent or just kind of bluffing its way through. And maybe that's part of the story is to go from sort of this, this beautiful cloud to this extremely debased physical creature. Well, that's inconsistent too, isn't it? Because at first, Saffron doesn't even know his own name after he's been infected. And they go from there to having Lo, who acts exactly the same way he does when he's infected as he did when he was uninfected, to the point that Leela can't figure out that he's infected. Now, that says something about the consistency of the story, that she can figure out that everybody else is inhuman. She can't figure out that Lo is infected. That is a big blind spot in the story. Which... I guess kind of works, but kind well It's the goggles. <laughs> she just can't she can't see through them. It's like Superman. I guess. <laughs> you blinded her with science. Yeah, I guess. It's the yeah. it's the goggles. The goggles were right. enough to do it. You just put on some shades and nobody's gonna be able to tell that you're inhuman. Oh god. Yeah. I interpreted I want the whole area cryogenically cocooned as crank the AC to fifty eight Fahrenheit. <laughs> They'll wrap themselves in blankets. Well, given the sort of weather we've had around here today, that wouldn't be surprising. Actually, the sort of weather the Daltons had out in California, come to think of it. Wait, he can beat our F3 tornado? Well, probably not the tornado, no. For listeners that may not be aware of this, this is being recorded the night after an F3 tornado touched down in certain parts of the metro Chicago area, which is a little frightening, especially getting that broadcast warning that comes over your phones at 11.15 at night and being told, run, run, oh God, run. And it's like, where to? <laughs> Not a word for word quote. Almost a word for word quote. It was certainly all caps, but oh God. Man, we had a weather forecast earlier this week that was like basically the lyrics of bad moon on the rise <laughs> <laughs> hail hurricane force winds this and that that form of precipitation and bantering about and it didn't uh, actually come about so i last night was the first like yeah 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 whatever end of the world um <laughs> and then we actually get a pretty good go at it uh-huh <laughs> yeah i haven't had anything happen here in san diego it's it's been sunny 70s <laughs> I felt a tremor from an earthquake out by the Salton Sea. It was a 5.3. That's it. Well, that sounds oh. like the perfect <laughs> conditions to get off your gear, breed, and multiply, as they do in the story. But you have to get there fast. You have to get there really fast. Faster, faster. Yaw, mule, yaw. You guys have been dealing with the, the cicadas, so... <laughs> well, there is that. <laughs> no, they're not this far north. No, they're not. We don't have them in the city. They're downstate and. But they're coming. I heard plenty of cicadas when I lived in Chicago. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That brood still has another couple of years. Oh, okay. (laughs) 
yeah, they haven't started showing up in the background of this recording to the same degree that the fucking motorcycles have. So <laughs> once they do. Well, it's also the perfect time for them to reproduce. Yes, it is. And they've got to get there in a hurry. They so. really do. And they have to lie inert, pulsating gently in a sea of bubbling gray jelly. Yeah, so that's what we're calling it these days. Ugh. When we emerge, we'll be coming through the tear duct. <laughs> oh, God. An unintentional, I think, Mark Twain uh, reference in here. He took a minute sample. Speaking <laughs> of... <laughs> from Mark Twain's Literary Offenses of Fenimore Cooper. He made a minute examination. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that essay. I really do. Oh, my God. He gives Fenmore Cooper such a hard time. And it's all deserved. That's the thing. Allison, I get the impression that there were things about the story you liked because you yes. said so. Well, and it's once again, a situation where I expect something will be awful and then I'm pleasantly surprised. Uh, I, I like that uh, we have a situation where Leela is said to be pleased to be faced with a situation she can understand and deal with when she realizes that she's going to have to fight off a bunch of enemies that's going to be violent and they'll probably all be killed. And this is comfortable and familiar. And <laughs> haven't we all felt that in life? Like, oh, well, the whole situation is turning against me. I'm accustomed to this. Very good. <laughs> We're back in familiar territory. <laughs> Yeah, like the dog in hell with this coffee. This is fine. Yes, yes. Well, not this is fine, dog, but so much as the concept of the, the motorboat propeller needs water, needs viscosity, needs something to churn against. <laughs> okay, I'm more confused by that than I am by the... <laughs> Leela needs something oh, physical to oh, fight to feel, in order to feel comfortable. I get it now, okay. In the same way. <laughs> <laughs> she needs an enemy to fight because when they're coming up with the antibodies, which, again, shouldn't exist, that's when she's outright bored. Yeah, I, I could see your point there. So I had not seen was it The Amazing Voyage. I feel quite the Philistine here. Uh, what was it? Fantastic Voyage. Fantastic Voyage. See, there you go. I did, not long after it was released, see Inner Space. So that was the sort of visual ah, I had going. Yes. And I did not anticipate that plot point at all. So mm. uh, I enjoyed the imagery of the different neural firings and synapses physically appearing as sort of lightning. And I know that's not original to this story, but I imagined it as terrific visuals and atmosphere, even if the special effects might have been disappointing had I seen them. They they are, uh, mainly because it is, even though Graham Williams kind of blew Doctor Who's budget on the story, he blew it mostly on K-9 and not on those other visuals. They're fine as far as they go, but bear in mind you're trying to reproduce Fantastic Voyage in a studio <laughs> with video cameras on a shoestring budget. That and the other problem is the Fantastic Voyage, even though it also has its scientific inconsistencies, this one gives it a real run for its money. <laughs> oh my god. Because none of this should be possible, even for Doctor Who. I'll tell you what's freaky is guess what I already named that bunny? Robert Klein. Wow, that's yeah, actually better. It's all yours. Thank you. So can you put it in a person's brain? He'd suffocate. Not the rabbit, idiot. The chip. I like 
though that it, the special effects budget was, I guess they spent all the special effects on the aluminum dog. Sorry, tin dog. <laughs> Aluminium dog, if you're doing that. There was con- <laughs> they compensated with banter. Like, I know that this brain like the back of my hand. And the doctor is so proud of his super ganglia. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. He almost needs suspenders to put his thumbs beneath. He's, he's so enjoying giving a tour of a wonderful brain and all that it can do. But I was curious and confused about the part where sort of the, the bit of scarf is uh, still in Leela's hand when the doctor is already crossed from one lobe to the other of the brain. And I guess I imagine that being a really bad special effect. It actually isn't. You would think it would be. It actually isn't. But they do the standard where you have one side of the camera blocked off so that you see someone. It's it's the same effect that they use for the TARDIS materializing, dematerializing. It's just people going through walls. It's that same sort of effect. Yeah, I figured it was just he walks behind a green screen. Or I guess at that point it would have been a blue screen. So I, I liked the idea of the synapses and uh, the neural firings uh, sort of flashing around like whip lightning. I didn't understand that the nucleus was hosted in the brain itself. So it was actually, I thought, a nice reveal that it had been following the doctor's thoughts. So I, I didn't see that coming, but it, it in the moment, it seemed to make sense. Hmm. Okay. In the moment. Well, so the doctor's mini-clone is climbing around the doctor's full-size brain, and also following the thoughts. I didn't think about the nucleus being able to follow the same thought. Literally. Yes. Yeah, that at least has some interesting possibilities to it. Unfortunately, they don't really... I'm not speaking to the scientific veracity of this description. No, 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 no. Metaphorical. Yeah, it works metaphorically. The problem is they don't ever really unpack the metaphor either, which is really a shame. I mean, you get lines like, into the land of dreams and fantasies, Leela, and it ends up being a big room. <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, okay, the doctor's imagination is really lacking. Crystals. <laughs> Which yes. doesn't make sense for the doctor. No. No, it absolutely doesn't. Does it make sense for Tom Baker either? Well, no, not at all. In fact, <laughs> I have a story about that. Tom Baker was being interviewed by somebody at some point, and they did the interview in the interviewer's home, and the interviewer was a bit of a pack rat and had a you know, mess all over the place in this room. And as he's apologizing to Tom Baker about the state of this room and how cluttered it is, Tom Baker says, this room reminds me of my mind. (laughs) And yeah, you could see the, the doctor's brain being like that. And it isn't because the budget simply won't extend to it being like that. Dalton, I get the impression that you also had some problems. Yeah. How do you clone clothes? <laughs> it was I did feel like Dix was apologizing for the story there. <laughs> and acknowledging it was quite odd. And since when does cloning involve the clone being able to feel what the original feels? Yeah. The sharing of sensations is just, it's just wrong. It's just off. Yeah. And there's no point to it, except for that one line, which seems to be in there just to expand that bit of the story where Leela feels her outside head getting bumped. 
the moment where the doctor sends the false alarm to the phagocytes, <laughs> phagocytes. Um, <laughs> now, I was wondering how that was spelled. It's phagocytes. Um, <laughs> I know. That is not a sequence of letters. No, it isn't. So, like, I was afraid it was spelled, in other words. It's PH. <laughs> yeah, it's PH. But he tells them that his liver is disintegrating on screen. When Tom Baker does that, he acts as if he's in pain. And you think, wait a minute, why would the clone doctor feel that pain? And it's like, oh, because he's feeling everything that the outside won't. But why? Why is it there? That is that is a problem. It's stupid. It's pointless. <laughs> it's like, no, it shouldn't be there. No. And, well, and I'm t- talking to about cloning not happening until the 30th century or something. <laughs> It's like, oh, if you would have only known 20 years later. But. Yes. And then referring to, it, there's something kind of charming about a scientist from the 51st century referring to a clone as a photocopy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a mimeograph, if you will. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They're two-dimensional. That's right, all. exactly. It's just kind of weird that it has that in it. And after all this business of how short-lived the clones are... Oh, God. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> how how much do they do in this 10 minutes that they have they have about an episode and a half of 10 minutes yeah, there were periodic markers of earth they only have five minutes left like five minutes it's been an hour yes yeah because the doctor after being cloned has enough time to get to the tardis get the dimensional stabilizer come back with it then have himself shrunken down and injected into himself boast about his ganglia Yes, it's just enough to make you want to put the book down in disgust. And I realize, and I know that I'm speaking to a very small segment of our listening audience at this point, because it gets smaller by the day, but I am not trying to slam Doctor Who, this story, or this book. However, I am pointing out that if you think about it too hard... It is ridiculous. It is very hard to ignore the ridiculousness of this story when you don't have the visuals. I don't know who you think is going to fight you on this being a ridiculous story. I don't think people with pitchforks are coming for you to tell you it's a serious work of hard sci-fi. We had somebody stop listening to us after the Loch Ness Monster episode because I made fun of the Loch Ness Monster on screen. That's what I'm talking about. Maybe they were so offended by my return to Mayberry reference that they just <laughs> maybe. couldn't stomach this programming anymore. I, maybe that was it. Okay, well, hopefully that person's having a more enjoyable life elsewhere now. I, I imagine they are, but it is hard to ignore the ridiculousness of the concepts when they're written on a page and you don't have the visuals such as they are to carry you along with the flow of the story. It's... Oh. And just because we're talking about things, it doesn't mean we dislike it. No. This this book may not be the best thing I've ever read, but it was still enjoyable. I still liked reading the story, seeing what's happening. I liked seeing how the doctor was going to solve the problem presented to him. I liked seeing Leela shoot things. <laughs> yeah. We're not mandated to maintain an even keel of pleasure or displeasure throughout the story. It's okay to like some things yeah. and not enjoy others. I... 
Yeah, I mean, there are parts of this that annoy the shit out of me, like clone, <laughs> like cloning clothes. But then there's lines like Leela saying, "Reject this," <laughs> or, or re- no, "Reject, reject yourself." Yes. And then, like that's fantastic. That's in a Stallone movie. Like, <laughs> like that's that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think I did find the uh, fine dog reference in this story, Tony. Uh, the doctor is looking at... Well, I I like where he looks at the blaster and he knows he's being mind-controlled because he wouldn't just be walking around carrying that and he comes back to himself for enough of a moment to, to formulate some sense of self and a strategy. Yes. But the, I like that Leela knows that something is up when he starts saying... This is a good place. Yes. <laughs> like, what? No. And I have to say, you have to remember that some of Tom Baker's most famous parts before Doctor Who were villains. He plays villains remarkably well. And he can straddle that whole thing of going from villainous to sympathetic to villainous again very quickly. He's marvelous in the story. He really is when he's doing those scenes. Listen to me, Leela. There's nothing wrong with this place. It's most suitable. It's a good place. A good place. Come on, Leela. I'm waiting. Please leave me. Please. I can't do it. I can't do it. Think of the purpose. She is a reject. She must die. I can't. The reject is here. The nucleus does not wish to be harmed. I shall destroy her. And I thought that that came across. I imagined it being quite chilling in places. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That saying, you know, yes, killer, killer. It's like, oh, God, it's absolutely terrifying. But then it's followed by that bit of stupidity. Where, ah, well, let me find it real quick, because I (laughs) meant... You're speechless with disdain. Well, it's towards the end of chapter three. In fact, there are a couple of moments here where the script just kind of loses itself for a second, and Dix doesn't know how to autocorrect for it. She's watching over the infected doctor. She was hurrying towards it when she heard a voice behind her, leave it to me, I know this place. Another crewman was running along the corridor. That voice is low. And he's chasing after the other infected crewman, but it's ridiculously hard with this description to know that that's what's going on. Especially (laughs) since chapter four starts with him going off in pursuit. And it's like, wait, wasn't he the one who just said, leave it to me, I know this place? On screen, that tracks, it works. It doesn't work on the page, and that's really, really odd. And that means there was a problem with the original script somehow. Well, the other thing that I alluded to earlier enjoying so much that probably put me in the mind to enjoy this story is I thought Meeker was glorious. Oh, really? I loved Meeker so much. (laughs) I qualified for exploration eight years ago. What am I? Glorified garage attendant on a planetary filling station. (laughs) I love a good grouch. I I hated to see him turn evil and die. (laughs) Well, I thought it was a lovely uh, scene setting. For, well, these, these are the people who would ordinarily bite the big one in uh, Terrence Dick's prologue, and they actually survive for a pretty good stretch of the, the story. 
considering they started off. Well, that means that's why it's not a prologue, because there's no bloodshed initially. But sci-fi has taught me to distrust automatic safety features, which was kind of a problem last summer when I had to do all that car rental to visit a family member during the pandemic. And they all have these automatic safety features that just immediately make me think of exploding spaceships. (laughs) And for the most part, don't work very well. The flashing light and vibrating steering wheel, if you cross the lane painting, uh, is especially fun when there's construction and you're not supposed to drive between the lines or you'll drive into a concrete barrier. So I was already predisposed to distrust the automatic safety features. But I, but I thought it was a really nice uh, bit talking about uh, hiring a crew that's at the absolute peak of mental and physical condition and human accomplishment and then just have them, you know, sit around. Computer <laughs> does everything and me <laughs> Maker just wants to at least be able to park the thing, do something, fly around. Like, you know, well, isn't, you know, why don't you let the computer do that? You know, it's just going to tell you what to do. Well, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to decide I want to do what it tells me to do and do it. So <laughs> right. that, that is that is actually the, what predisposed me to like the book. But I actually, now that I, I think of it, Meeker and Leela do have similarities beyond their double vowels in their name. Um, <laughs> And that is that Leela wants to do things. Yeah. <laughs> Mikra wants to do things. They have tremendous amount of experience and skill in certain areas, and they are anxious to employ it, even if there's not much need for it in the moment. And, and Leela's so pleased when there is need for violence in the moment. And uh, mm-hmm. sadly, uh, Mikra is denied much need for his skills. Yeah. And I have to admit, I also don't much care for Dick's going off on a miniature rant about space nicks. Oh, the long hairs. Yeah, it came off as just wanting to slam the hippies. And it's like, oh, Terrence, come on now. Of course, the hippies aren't going to be around by the year 5000. <laughs> Or they're not going to be doing that sort of thing. Well, and that they're they're not like activist hippies. They're just slackers. Yeah, whatever. exactly. It was kind of like watching the movie. Um, oh, God, what is the name of the movie about? Slacker. That's it. <laughs> the movie Slacker from uh, the early 90s and thinking, oh, so they're slackers transported to the year 5000, which is a movie that somebody should probably make. Another thing that should not have surprised me, but did in a pleasant way, is that I thought that the Titan space station crew that was welcoming our three doomed heroes over some kind of intercom system would turn out to be voice simulated and they would all be dead already or they would be the evil ones. They don't, you know, oh, we're so excited you're here. We're not even going to come out of the mess hall to greet you. We're just in here having a good time. Come in. It just sounded so obviously a trap (laughs) that it did surprise me that all three crew members were already possessed and turned on them. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be just Saffron. Oh, interesting. Okay. It did take me by surprise as a heel turn. I guess it would, because you wouldn't have gotten the visual of them all having those visors down over their faces on, on screen. Like we then. Well, and also amusingly, uh, we have three men talking about the great breeding condition. Yes, and getting their your gear off. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. What else? The physical envelope is of no importance. <laughs> Very gnostic space alien. Yeah, just a bit. Uh, the, the alien who screams faster, faster, faster says the physical envelope is no importance. Is <laughs> somewhat hypocritical. Yeah. True. 
because that physical envelope is about to get unsealed really, really quick. You know, the uh, machine that's used to mechanically um, stuff envelopes for mailing is called a burster. Oh, <laughs> I did not. I'm not sure I want to know how you came by that particular factoid, but... Uh, just doing a mailing, but yes. Interesting. Oh, mail burst. I'm just trying to make dirty jokes. I thought yes. that was my... Yes, of course. My job description. Yeah, of course it is. The exchange between the doctor and Lilo, what are we going to do? Shall we try using our intelligence? Well, if you think that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) There are good bits in the story. Mm -hmm. There are that. I I really enjoy the parrot exchange a lot. Yes. Very good banter. Mm -hmm. I I feel like there is actually quite a bit of good banter in the story that adequately distracted me from the lack of cohesion of the, the plot mechanics. Yeah, and I guess that would do it. I have a feeling that my dislike for this book and the fact that I read through the entire thing in one sitting one night in three hours probably tells you just how tired I am of the story. We're coming at this in different directions, which is good, because that's that's exactly what this whole exercise is all about. We're, we're almost 100 episodes into this exercise, and we're still coming up with what I think are interesting insights and surprising details that we may not have considered. Well, another thing that was less offensive than I expected about K-9, and I apologize, uh, we've got... Marius, and we've got the consultant. That's about it. Uh, there are three, and I... We get the unnamed up. nurse. It's nothing to do on the page. At the end, there's a pleasant surprise that Dr. Marius actually survives and adopts K-9 out, because I thought we were going to have some kind of gratuitous Victrola, his master's voice kind of situation. <laughs> okay. And we didn't. So sometimes everyone lives. What? Was that going to be the Victrola, his master's voice situation? It's the the Victrola ad of the dog uh, looking at the speaker, hearing the recording of the master's voice. But the original ad, the dog's perched on a coffin. Oh. The master is dead. Oh, that's right. So I thought there was going to be some kind of flagrant manipulation wherein... Marius dies and there's that's supposed to build the pathos of the situation and I don't know, his last wish is for Leela to take K9. Some some BS like that that I don't that, enjoy. I can tell you why that wouldn't happen. Mainly because Graham Williams have been told to make it more kid friendly and to make it less scary. I'm sorry, we're still in the mid century. Do you have any idea how many dogs and deer die <laughs> in children's literature oh, in I the mid century? Oh, I'm well aware of that. that. Exa- they would absolutely, maybe not kill the dog, they would absolutely kill the scientist who created the dog. Oh, I absolutely agree. And To jerk the, the, the tears right out of those kids. Oh, I know. I, I, I was one of those kids that was just in utter agony watching the fox and the hound in the theater when it came out and just bawling my eyes out and my parents getting all worried about me because of that but yeah you can absolutely see professor marius dying in some of the version of this and it making absolute sense for the doctor and leela to take canine with them as a result but that's not going to happen in a graham williams season or at least not in this story it could have happened under chris boucher a nice bit of restraint yeah parsons was the third one marius parsons, parsons and the consultant. yeah parsons dies i did not do a good job of distinguishing well that's because they're not undistinguishable yeah they, there's no point in distinguishing between them. no marius is the only one that matters yeah exactly i'm gonna complain about something now. okay why is k9 vulnerable to possession good question 
probably because the Titan shuttle was and because the TARDIS briefly was. The swarm appears to be able to at least alter mechanical circuits for a little while on its way to a biological host, but yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I think of the TARDIS as different, but I guess K-9 still would have some kind of simulated consciousness. But it's always temporary, because with the TARDIS, it is only there briefly, then it takes over the Doctor, it tries to take over Leela, and then it's out. Titan shuttle, it finds its way into the humans. And then with K-9, he shuts down and he regenerates, and he's fine. <laughs> so that actually has some consistency to it, which is amazing given this story. The age of man is over and the age of the virus has begun. Oh, don't talk about 2020 right now. God. Fortunately, that didn't work out within the story, though. The age of the virus didn't quite take off. Yeah, thank goodness. Despite the efforts of uh, various and sundry. Anything else? Any other tiny things such as the fact that we now know as they did not know in 1979 that Saturn actually has 82 moons and not just 10? I think I just learned that now. <laughs> this oh. is educational programming. Uh, so yeah. uh, Leela's really hot for blowing things up in a way that actually becomes yes. tiresome. I do not recall her being exposed to the concept and scenario of blowing things up before and being so engaged with the idea. Is that new oh, here? Yeah. No. Uh, from the last story, she saw the um, Rutan ship blown up. In fact, she even got her eye color changed because oh, of it. Oh, okay. That would explain. This is her new toy. Explosives, sort of. Okay. Uh, she seems to kill a lot in this story in a, in a pretty cavalier way where the doctor seems to have just accepted it as an eccentricity. I guess she has been doing that quite a bit, but I'm still I'm still not comfortable with a doctor who's relatively casual about the companion just knifing people left and right. And Well, it's either that or let them do what they're going to do. So I think it's the lesser of two evils, really. But you're right. It does seem... It is always in that context. It's not just gratuitous. But yeah. interestingly, it's something where I'm not comfortable with the fact that Leela is always shown as being right over the doctor. Well, you know, who's going to kill you? And, you know, what can you do? What if you cut through? Terrence Dix doesn't do nearly enough with that scene either, where the doctor takes credit for Leela's idea and then tells her she should be very happy. Because on the page, she is very happy. On screen, he, he delivers that line in such a way that she isn't quite sure how to take it. Methane atmosphere mixed well with oxygen and run. That was a good idea of mine, K-9, to blow it up. Uh, but if... <laughs> what do you mean it was a good idea of yours? It was my idea. What was? To blow it up. Well, then you should be feeling very happy. Yes, I am. Shall we return K-9 to the professor? <laughs> And it's really well done. It plays out differently here, but not much else plays out differently here, to be honest. Yeah, this is very much script to page, I will say. Does the episode contain humanity spreads like a tidal wave or a disease? Yep. I thought you liked humanity. Some of my best friends are human. When they get together in great numbers, other life forms sometimes suffer. Yes, he does say that. And it's a, it's a nice character beat, in fact. Yeah, and it kind of echoes the conversation that the doctor has with the nucleus, where he asks, why did you choose my brain? Because of your intelligence. Well, I can understand that, but you have no right. I have every right. It's the right of every creature across the universe to survive, multiply, and perpetuate its species. How else does the predator exist? 
And we are all predators, Doctor. We kill, we devour to live. Survival is all. And there's an interesting philosophical debate there that the story only scratches the surface of. And the doctor kind of hand waves it later when she says to him, I thought you didn't like killing. And he says, I don't. The virus has a perfect right to exist as a microscopic form, but it has no right to exist as a macroscopic one. And you think, well, wait a minute. You were trying to wipe it out when it was microscopic too, weren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... What what the what the hell? What the what? Yeah, what the what exactly? <laughs> oh, good lord! So, anything else about this one? The horrible pun at the end about a canine being TARDIS trained. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Womp womp womp. Yeah. For the children. Yeah, we get a Scooby Doo joke at the end. Yeah, lucky us. <laughs> so, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's go. Let's do it. Okay. As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.33. Which is a good bit lower than the previous book, but not a lot lower. The reviews from our Goodreads group, again, have been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but do keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives this book two stars and says, Back in my Target collecting days, I feel certain I passed this one over multiple times simply because I felt the story itself was a bit silly. The story is an ambitious one from Bob Baker and Dave Barton, which is let down by the budgetary limitations. It does, however, include their trademark Tom Baker era attempt to create a catchphrase in each story. The audiobook is my first exposure to it in target novel form, and it's a bit more fun than I anticipated. Part of that is the sheer gusto of Louise Jameson performing the audiobook. And part of it is it's been so long since I dusted off the story for a rewatch that the unlimited budget of my imagination took over. Yeah, I wish my memory would fade enough that I could do that. I'm like, wait a minute, there was a Louise Jameson version of this? Yeah, the audiobook. Oh, I had a different one. I'll have to look up who it was. Oh, it may have been John Leeson. Yes, that's who it was. Our Patreon Dave Davis gives it three stars and says, The story has never been a favorite of mine. Doctor Who is best when there's something for all ages, and for me, this one is tilted a little too much towards younger children. It's not just K-9, a character I've never been that keen on, but the ideas around the clones being able to wander around inside the Doctor's head without suffocating or even getting damp. At least, Harry Kleiner gave his Fantastic Voyagers a submarine to protect them. No, it wasn't Asimov. His book was a novelization of the screenplay. The CSO for these scenes is pretty good, but what they depict is nonsense. The book makes it fairly easy to ignore this point, as well as the ridiculous giant prawn monster. Though I'm not a fan of the Tin Dog, I think they picked the right character voiced by John Leeson to keep his companion. There's, yeah, because it couldn't have been the prom monster. Uh, There's some pretty good dialogue, and though we lose something from the acting, it's quite well represented in prose. All in all, though it's not Terrence Dick's best writing or more or less script page, most of what's left out makes it a net gain. 
And finally, Mel gives it four stars and says, I am very much enjoying the novelizations of Old Who that I picked up in Oxford. This one was based on a Leland and Tom Baker episode, which was the first episode of Canine. I have to say the characterization of Canine in the novel is pretty great, as the little sides the author put in to qualify his comments were most amusing. I've not watched many Leela episodes, and what I thought was most interesting from the book was that it really seemed that she and the Doctor just didn't like each other very much. They are just at such odds. She with her predator instinct, he with his massive intellect. The story itself started quite well, an enemy life from invading a base on Titan. The story seemed to get a bit sillier when the Doctor and Leela cloned and then miniaturized themselves to go inside the Doctor's brain to fight the virus. This was balanced by Canine being quite lethal, quite enjoyable, and definitely an episode I'd like to see sometime, though I fear the effects in my mind are much better than the BBC of the 1970s could manage. Oh, boy, howdy. You have no idea. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this book? I don't want to be absolutely horrible, so I'll say (laughs) 2.5. I was going to say 2, but I'll give it another half star, because there were at least some banter moments with with Lita and the Doctor that I enjoyed. I think overall the story is just not that interesting to me. There were a lot of inconsistencies and just things that left me with questions. The The plot itself was just kind of bleh. So we'll see what happens with K-9. As of now, I'm not too excited, but you say that it gets better, so I trust your opinion. <laughs> so for, for now, though, I'll say 2.5 for this book. Okay. And Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this book? Uh, also 2.5. Someone else was saying, ooh, of course the girl likes the robot dog. No, I don't like the robot dog. I just don't <laughs> hate it as much as I expected to. Well, I did actually, what line did I find that I resembled? I speak not in my own voice, but in a deep, throaty, gurgling, and human tone that sounds like someone choking on his own blood. And uh, <laughs> I enjoyed Meeker and Leela so much in this book that uh, I gave it a 2.5, which is actually uh, nicer for me than it is from, from Dalton. It's a real slam. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and maybe it just hit me at the right frame of mind, but I enjoyed it. Silly though it is. Okay. And as for me, I am going to be harder than Dalton and give it a two because, like I said, it is incredibly difficult to ignore the inconsistencies of the story on the printed page. It's pretty damn hard to ignore them on the screen as well. But at least there you're carried away by the sheer energy of the story, I guess, because it really moves along in a rapid clip. In fact, that's probably part of the reason why this book is so short. It's because there are lots of action sequences. And it's possible for Taron Sticks to just compress them as much as he can. But that's a problem. When Taron Sticks gets into the habit of compressing things... Right. I'm just visualizing one of those packets of freeze-dried shrimp with the nucleus here. Well, yes. <laughs> all, all compressed to be reconstituted later in the, the dish of your choice. But that's the thing. He never reconstitutes it. <laughs> that Dix at his best will expand on things. He will give people backgrounds. He'll give them backstories. He'll give them motivations. He'll give them names if they don't have names. He will explain things that make no goddamn sense on the fucking screen. He couldn't care less this time. 
he couldn't be bothered. This time, he's got a deadline to meet. The script is written by two guys who he's had to script edit before. He's not script editing them now, and he's saying, ah, well, this is what they get. And he's just putting it down on the page the way it comes to him. And it really shows, which is unfortunate. I'm not saying that this book could have been the novelization of Fantastic Voyage. It was never going to be an Asimov book. But it could at least have been a better Terrence Dix book. So yeah, two stars. So, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we discuss Terrence Dix's novelization of Image of the Fendal. Ooh. And not the Kendall, the Fendal. <laughs> okay, Image of the whom? Fendall. You'll read it. You'll see. In the meantime... You'll read it and you'll like it. You'll like it. Exactly. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Target Book Club Podcast, all one word with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC. Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will... Email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.